Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. First, we will be out of the EU, free to chart our own course as a sovereign nation, taking back control of our money, our laws, our borders, and our trade. We are ready to move to the next phase in our relationship. We want our future relationship to be as close as possible in full respect of our principles. We don't yet know what sort of a Brexit we'll get. We don't yet know whether it's going to be a roaring success or a horrible failure. And five years down the line, when we next have a general election, those issues are then possibly going to come back. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Warm welcome to the programme. So we just heard from the Prime Minister, a really quite wide-ranging speech. The NHS is not on the table in a US trade uh, negotiation. Uh, also uh, talking about it not being a race to the bottom when it comes to trade. And of course, the, the key issue is with the EU. Yeah, and that comes as both sides set out their stalls today. This is the first uh, position of the negotiation on behalf of both of them. We we heard uh, the EU chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, speaking in Brussels. He said the bloc is ready to offer an ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas on all goods. We need to make sure competition is and remains open and fair. We have already agreed with Prime Minister Johnson that our future partnership will prevent unfair competitive advantages. We must now agree on specific and effective guarantees to ensure a level playing field over the long term. So that was the EU chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, there giving uh, his take, uh, speaking in Brussels. Trade talks will officially get underway next month with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson pushing for a deal basically similar to the one agreed with Canada. We want a thriving trade and economic relationship with the EU are historic friends, partners, neighbours. Uh, Johnson also said he wasn't about to undermine EU business standards, so very much setting himself up for a fight with the EU. Uh, joining us now is uh, the, the man of the moment, as far as Bloomberg is concerned, Edward Evans, our Brexit editor. Uh, funnily enough, still being our Brexit editor, nothing's really changed, has it? Uh, let's talk about where l- ground is likely to be given, because you go into these negotiations, you put your issues on the table, surely there's something in mind for both sides that they're willing to give up. Well, I think that's absolutely right. In any negotiation, you start with the extreme thing position that you want and then come to a compromise over a period of months. I think that there is a big question here over how much Johnson actually really wants a comprehensive trade agreement with the EU. And that's really a question of how far does he actually want to use Brexit as a chance to break free from what he sees as the EU's really very restrictive rulebook. And we've got a very clear answer today that, yes, this is about breaking free. This is about setting Britain setting its own course away from Europe. But listen to the rhetoric a little bit more closely. And you got those assurances, you know, because the country's not going to engage in a race to the bottom here on standards or dumping or anything like that. So there could conceivably be ground for 
a compromise here. I'm just not clear that it would be, end up in the, the, the kind of comprehensive trade agreement like Canada got, whether we might be on course now for 11 months of quite painful and, and, and tortuous negotiations over something that could end up being much more limited, i.e. a goods-only a goods deal in a much more limited number of areas. Mm, but, Ed, it's, it's not really 11 months, though, is it? Is no. there actually time for this deal, whatever it looks like? No, I think that, I think that's the thing. They've got to get, wrap this up by the end of June at the very latest. Um, the EU have been quite clear on this. Uh, from the start that there's not going to be enough time to do everything. Uh, and that's why, again, I think this goes to a more limited kind of agreement on this. And then if we do get a sort of goods-only trade deal, what does that mean in practice for services, which makes up something like 80% of the UK economy? Yeah, services are obviously the big part of this. And don't forget the Canada, the, 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 the sort of the gold standard here, the Canada deal excluded services anyway. Mm. So for, for services, anything less would actually not be a huge difference because, of course, they weren't going to get that kind of access under Canada anyway. So what we'll have to watch for on services is whether the EU will grant London equivalence. Uh, that's a decision that will be entirely in the EU's court. The, the rule there is if they think that the UK's regulations are equivalent, i.e. as good as what the EU has, they will then graciously allow London's financial services industry into the, the EU single market. Now, of course, London's applying the same rules as the EU at the moment anyway, so it wouldn't be too hard to see uh, the agreement could be reached there. The big thing, though, is there are many in the city who actually know this is a great opportunity for the city to break free from, again, the EU and chart its own course. So that, again, we'll see how that how that if, if evolves. Yeah, indeed. And also, if the city uh, were to get equivalents, it would still remain in the hands of the EU. That gift could be yeah. whipped away, uh, you know, just as swiftly as, as it is given and unilaterally so. Um, but we'll, we'll perhaps get on to that in just a moment. Um, but Tell us then what the other option might be. I mean, supposedly this Australia-style agreement, how is that different from a no deal? Uh, well, the point with Australia is it doesn't have a free trade agreement with the EU. Um, it has very limited, um, it basically trades on WTO terms, i.e. with tariffs and quotas, but with um, various technical agreements that make it a little bit easier. Now, this is such a, a wonderful situation for Australia. They spent the last year trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with the EU. Um, in practice, when Johnson is talking about Australia, he's talking about a no deal uh, mm. or at least a WTO term style Brexit. Now, that would look awfully like a no deal Brexit. You will see uh, quotas where there are none, customs checks where there are none and tariffs when there are none. So for, for business, that is very clearly the choice there between Canada and what is awfully like no deal. And is it fair to say that the economic impact of such an Australia-style deal could be pretty dire? Yes. I mean, don't forget, the Canada deal would have an impact. I mean, the government, has, the ONS, I think, has already said that the Canada agreement on its own would have an impact to take a chunk off growth over a period of time. So Australia would, of course, be much more significant than that. Mm. OK. Bloomberg's Brexit editor, Ed Evans, thank you so much for joining us this morning, uh, talking us through uh, the pronouncements of the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Well, joining us now down the line is Suren Tiru, who's the head of economics at the British Chambers of of commerce because Suren can really give us a bit more feedback in terms of uh, what the business community thinks about um, what Mr Johnson has said so far. You've heard the speech this morning, I assume, and the EU responds. What about this Canada-style deal? Is that really good enough? Well, it's, when you speak to a lot of businesses, um, they see these high-level names, but actually what they really want to see are behind those uh, uh, type of models. So we've heard, for example, that there'll be uh, obviously lower tariffs, but, there, but in contrast, there'll be customs checks and or VAT checks. And what businesses will want to know is the detail behind those 
um, sort of high-level models. So what type of customs checks can be in place in particular? Because what we don't want to be in position by starting next year is having huge friction at, at, at the trade border. That creates huge costs for businesses. And what about this talk of an Australia-style deal? It sounds like, given that Boris Johnson is positing this as an option, that it's not just a, a risk in the background. It's something that he would actively accept if the situation came to it. Well, I mean, I mean, we're hearing a lot of, sort of high-level names. Again, businesses want to see more of the detail. And I guess it is concerning when, when you speak to all businesses and we say about businesses from across the UK. And they want a close alignment as possible and minimising sort of friction, trade friction and cost. And that's sort of the principles that we look for or the outcome we look for for any trade deal or any potential trade model is how do you reduce those frictions and, and, and costs at the borders? Because ultimately, it's businesses that trade, not governments. And what we need to have is an agreement in place that helps businesses trade across borders. But in terms of the timeline for these trade talks, as Ed was just mentioning, you know, they've got to be wrapped up basically by the start of summer. That's just a few months away. Surely businesses are just not going to have uh, the information that, that you say that they need. That's certainly exceptionally tight. And what we've seen at the moment, and as well as, sort of, as you say, um, looking at those high-level agreements, is actually the guidance for the business need to adapt. So there are going to be pretty significant changes come the start of next year. And now, in terms of the information available at the moment, of course, we had a lot of information last year around no deal. We've got there's some information out at the moment around the implementation period, but there's nothing really concrete for 2021 and some of the changes businesses may face around customs, around uh, you know moving stuff across borders, around the people they can hire. These sort of fundamental questions that are going to impact the business environment for the next decade, next decade or so, and we really need sort of key real-world answers to those practical-level questions. Because for far too long, um, Brexit has been uh, the politics of Brexit should be really need to be replaced by the practicalities of Brexit. If we're going to see a, a stable outcome come 2021. And what about those practicalities? What impact on the economy do you see these various versions having? Well, it's, it's hard because there is so much up in the air. It's hard to make firm predictions. Um, but it's clear that the, 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 a better outcome would be to ease trade friction across the borders. That means that businesses can go on about their business, moving goods across borders, maintain supply chains. That's really important, particularly for certain sectors where we've had supply chains moving across across Europe and beyond. That's, so that's really important. But also, what other help is going to be provided for business as well? So, as well as having trade agreements in place, what's really important is that businesses who look to export uh, both to Europe and also to new markets as well. Is that sort of, that sort of practical level trade support is available? Like going back to those issues at borders, the Canada model is going to come with customs checks, difficult regulations. Is is that model that the is being put forward? Is that really acceptable to your members? It's, it's, it's a certainly a challenging model, but I think when we talk about that, it's also again talking about practicalities. So if there are going to be additional checks, is there enough capacity at ports to, to cope with a potential backlog, particularly when there maybe new check maybe new checks in place for some? For new third countries for the UK, so those sort of practical level questions need to be answered. Are those, you know, are those sort of arrangements in place to help the UK help UK businesses continue to trade across borders? Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. 
Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. What we've got, Caroline? Well, first of all, the Scottish government's push for a new referendum on separating from the UK has got a boost from... Donald Tusk, the former president of the European Council, says that there would be widespread enthusiasm if the EU, uh, in the EU, basically, if Scotland applied to rejoin the bloc after independence. Wow, that was quite a zinger. Comments on the BBC's Andrew Marr uh, show, and it drew a sharp rebuke from Dominic uh, Raab, the Foreign Secretary, saying that Donald Tusk's interference is irresponsible. So, you know, raising an eyebrow, obviously, because uh, Europe has other uh, issues with uh, you know, separatist movements too. That's the really interesting thing. Just just how different the view is when it comes to separatism outside of the EU. Yeah. And I'd be intrigued to see how widely these comments are shared within the European Union. Uh, we've got this story as well. Several government departments seeing their gender pay gap widen over the past year. Downing Street aiming for civil service to be the UK's most inclusive employer this year. But some FT analysis has shown that four of those departments reported a rise in the gap. The Department for International Trade had the biggest increase in pay disparity. It took its median gender pay gap to almost 13%. Uh, other governments that have increased their gap were the Home Office, the Ministry of Justice and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Yeah, of course, the irony of this was not lost uh, on anyone because, uh, in fact, uh, Liz Truss, of course, is the leader of the Department for International Trade. So there we are. Um, meanwhile, this one had us all <laughs> chuckling or bemused. I'm not quite sure. Dominic, Bonkers, Cum- Dominic Cummings has set up a network of mafia-style snitches in Westminster restaurants to stop ministerial aides getting free lunches from journalists. I, I think that is a little bit of, uh, of a flourish of language that we've uh, got from one of the newspapers, the Sunday Times, reporting that Boris Johnson's right-hand man told government special advisers SPADs on Friday evening that in future they must pick up half the bill if they go for lunch, dinner or drinks uh, with the media. So, I mean, that sounds pretty normal in terms of an expenditure. Enough, yeah. uh, but I think it's more the fact that it's sort of trying to work out who Spads are meeting up with that is yeah. the juicy bit. If anyone wants to come and have lunch with us, we won't tell. <laughs> yeah. That is a joke. I must clarify that probably also contravenes our own compliance uh, policies. Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, Let, let's keep it straightforward, shall we? On our lunches <laughs> and dinners and so on. <laughs> Snip to prayer, it's much easier. Pay with your own money. Right, okay, let's talk about something a little bit more serious. London suffering another terror attack over the weekend in which two people were stabbed and the attacker, a 20-year-old ISIS supporter, Sadesh Arman, was killed by the police. It emerged that the man had been under, under police surveillance at the time. Of course, we end up with a theme here harking back to the London Bridge attack just a couple of months ago. Um, let's dig into this because this is becoming very uh, prevalent now. Joining us is Siobhan Benita. She is the Liberal Democrat mayoral candidate. Uh, that's the election for the London mayor that's going to take place on the 7th of May this year. Siobhan, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So we're now hearing from the Prime Minister he wants tougher rules on releasing convicted terrorists. Uh, Sadiq Khan expressing anger over the failure to prevent what he called a foreseeable and preventable terror attack in Streatham. Where do you stand on terror sentencing? 
Well, I think the first thing to say is that, you know, Londoners must absolutely feel safe. They must be safe going around their daily lives. And it's clear that this man was still a threat to the public. So I completely agree that we need urgent changes to uh, our current laws to make sure that these type of people are not allowed out while they can still do harm to the public. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, yesterday I would say, you know, huge thanks to the police for acting as quickly as they did because undoubtedly their actions, you know, prevented this from being an even worse attack. But the question is, why was this man allowed out on the streets in the first place? And we absolutely need to address that and look at fundamentally reviewing the way um, terrorists are, are treated, both in, in prison, you know, obviously the rehabilitation, if there was any, didn't work in this instance. And then he shouldn't have been released back out to the street. OK, so automatic early release should end? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, there has to be a system in place to make sure there has to be a risk assessment done properly. If there isn't any doubt that somebody's a risk to the public, they shouldn't be allowed back out on the streets. And we also have to be looking at what's going on whilst terror suspects, whilst you know, convicted terrorists are in prison, because rehabilitation is, is definitely not working in a lot of the cases. I heard one uh, senior conservative at the time of the last terrorist attack saying that there are some uh, people in prison who are just beyond rehabilitation. Would you agree with that? Um, I, I mean, I would need to look into that, I think. I mean, that's a sad state of affairs if we're saying that rehabilitation can never work. But again, I would say the public safety has to be paramount. There has to be a system where you can assess the danger to the public before somebody is released um, when it comes to terrorists. So if that is the case, then I think we really do need to look at that seriously because there are too many instances now where we are seeing these things happening on the streets of London and that can't be right. Okay, so then more broadly in terms of improving policing, obviously, uh, you know, you're you're running to be um, the mayor of, uh, to become the mayor of London. ONS figures showing that offences involving knife crime and sharp instruments in the year ending in September were the highest on records, almost 45,000. I'm sure that you know all the statistics, that it's horrifying, but actually people on the streets and citizens understand the risks also very much. So what is your proposal to try to improve policing in, in London? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to the policing side of things, we need we need to see many more police on the streets. You know, Bobby's back on the beat. We we need to have uh, strengthen our neighbourhood teams. Absolutely. But I would how like. How does to see one all pay of... for that? I mean, that is, if you don't mind my saying, an easy an easy answer. We've had a decade of austerity in which police numbers have done nothing yeah, but go down. We have. Well, the government has said that it's going to get more policing back uh, on the streets. So we're hoping that several thousand of those will come to London as part of the announcement that the government has made. I would like to see all of those police being put into frontline policing back in the community teams. Um, Sadiq Khan has also just recently in the latest budget announcements for um, London has said that he will be increasing the local tax that he's allowed to raise to make sure that that is put back into additional policing. So I support absolutely all of that. I think we also need to look at how those police are used across our capital. And I would definitely be reopening the police stations that have been shut down under this current mayoralty. Over half of the local police stations have been closed. We need to get back to seeing police as as right at the heart of our communities. They're a police service, not a police force. You know, we are all working together on the same side. 
And I think people really need to feel that the you know, officers are back there in the communities. And even police themselves are saying it's hugely important that they are on the streets where they can pick mm. up signs of things going on early on, you know, gather that local intelligence and that local knowledge. And yeah. I really want to see us moving back to that kind of model. Siobhan, you are a Remainer and you say that you've now accepted that the UK is leaving the EU. So I'm interested in your views there. But just on the views that we've had in terms of policing, police numbers and terrorism, to me, your policies are not sounding very different from the current London Mayor Sadiq Khan or indeed from the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Can you highlight some differences in your views? Sure. They absolutely are in terms of you were talking about how we tackle knife crime and I'm saying policing is only one part of that issue. So if you always focus on enforcement and enforcement alone, you're never going to deal with the underlying causes of serious violence. So I have a whole series of policies also looking at early intervention. Um, I, one thing that distinguishes me from a lot of the other candidates is if we really are to tackle serious violence across London, it's time that we had a legalised and regulated uh, cannabis market because we absolutely have to emasculate and remove the power and the wealth from the drugs gangs in London. They are causing so much of the violence that we are being affected by in London. That's something that distinguishes me very much from the other candidates. I want to have a youth um, service uh, across London to make sure that we're giving all of our young people hope and opportunities and things to do as well because our young people are becoming incredibly uh, vulnerable to organised crime, especially in that period after school, between kind of 4 and 6 p.m. Um, I want a young mayor to sit above that youth service uh, for young people in London so that young people feel like they have a voice in London as well. Um, So I think in terms of how I'm different, I'm not just looking at this as a policing issue. I'm I'm looking at this from a public health kind of perspective and saying we absolutely need to tackle the underlying causes as well. And I'm looking at an excerpt from your speech, you're saying that the entire focus now should be on ensuring after Brexit that London becomes the best city or remains the best city in the world for business, investment, tourism and its residents. Uh, But one truth of the position of Mayor London is that there isn't a lot of power in, in, in the whole picture of things. How would you ensure this? Because there's so much coming from outside, from government, from new trading relationships. How do you make sure that London stays the best in the position as mayor of London in things like business and investment? Yeah. Well, one, you've got um, you know one of the largest political platforms as mayor of London. You should absolutely be using that to lobby government where you can to champion London's um, you know strengths and opportunities. I would definitely be um, saying to the government that under their points-based system that they want to bring in, London should be allowed to have its own visa so mm-hmm. that we can make sure that we bring in the skills and the talent that we need. You know, our sectors across London mm-hmm. absolutely thrive because we have not just EU citizens but the best talent from around the world working here. Okay. I don't want that to change. Speaking I would like to see the minimum salary cap reduced, for example, because we need to bring in people who, who aren't earning £30,000 a year. Um, that's one thing that we could be doing. Yeah. But also, as Mayor of London, I'm saying, and this would be directly in, in my control, I would set up an international trade team so that we can really see some of the opportunities now building on strengths where we're already doing well in areas like fintech, for example, But we also have, you know, we have the most universities and higher education institutes in this city than any other city in the world. There are massive opportunities there for doing more in in the world of science and medical research. Um, And I really want to see City Hall leading the way on building and forging some of those partnerships going forward. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.